Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, we review the 2019 Secure Act. That's right, we're going back in time, but we think this one was important and we want to make sure you know what changed. Stick around, it's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed, and please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back, everybody, to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my colleague and friend, Dan Maseka. Dan, it's another week. Great to see you, bud. Ross, it is another week. Great to see you as well. We've got the Olympics going on. Are, are you an Olympics household? Have, have you guys gotten into that? So as a kid, I was very much into the Olympics. For some reason, this year feels a little bit different. Um, so I didn't watch a ton. However, last night for the first time, I did put on gymnastics to show my daughter. And just her reaction made me rethink my approach to this year's Olympics. Because she immediately was watching them with awe. And uh, just seeing how inspired a young person can be watching these great athletes made me feel like I should be putting her in front of that stuff more often. She immediately went to copy the floor routine, and I think she has a future um, in like 20, 30-something. There you go. Well, that, that's a uh, that's a very competitive circuit to get on, so you got to start her young. Yeah, hopefully she doesn't have my genes in that department. <laughs> I think we can all we can all hope for that for you. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I've been excited. You know, I, I grew up swimming, and that was my sport through high school, and uh, I was not that competitive. I I was here at the local level, but certainly not at a regional or state level. Uh, But I really enjoy getting to see those athletes. They just don't seem to get much airtime other times during the year. And that's always what I'm so shocked by with the Olympics is how many sports are out there where we have like a national team, but I've never seen the sport anywhere else except for during Olympic times. I had handball on the other day and like handball basically looks like water polo, but without the water. And I I don't understand like how active is that community when it's not the Olympics? It it just seems like maybe a fun sport to play, but, but at a high competitive level, it seems very strange to me. Right. Very active for elementary school students. I remember playing handball all the time. Yeah, I guess I guess I I would see it there. I think we did more like floor hockey and stuff like that. I, I don't remember handball. Your person of interest, Bryson DeChambeau, making the news in the golf arena of the Olympics. Well, yeah, he and uh, John Rahm both uh, tested positive, right? Yeah, that's got to be a disappointment after looking forward to that event oh for my years. Gosh. And John, I mean, John Rahm, this is the second time it's happened really in weeks, right? I mean, he, he disqualified out of a tournament on the final day that he was leading and then has this happen to him again. Now, granted, he did win a major in there, so uh, it's not like he's having the worst year ever, but but certainly frustrating. So uh, I guess we should get into our topic today, which is a bit of a throwback episode uh, that we would have covered at the time that it happened if we were doing a show. Uh, But at the time, we didn't have a show. And I think it gets missed a little bit how impactful this law change was. So we're going back to the end of 2019 in uh, a world just before COVID started dominating everybody's headspace. Uh, which is partially why I think it got missed. Today, we're going to be talking about the SECURE Act. This act changed a bunch of things that affect anybody with a retirement plan. And I just thought it was worthwhile for us to 
go back, review what changed, make sure people are aware of those updates, because I do think it affects their planning moving forward. So when we think of what the SECURE Act did, the 2019 SECURE Act, the first thing that comes to mind for me, and this might have been just the headspace I was in at the time, was the shifting of the RMD age. So previously at age 70 and a half, how they got to that number, I have no idea. You were required to start distributing assets from your IRAs and your your retirement accounts. Now they've pushed that out to age 72. So you don't have to start taking money unless you want to until you're age 72. And that extra year and a half, I think for many people is nice. It definitely opens up a little bit of additional time for tax planning where you've got the choice to take money out of your IRAs or your qualified plans, but you don't necessarily have to. Uh, and that's a that's a great opportunity to have, whether you're looking at things like Roth conversions, whether you're looking at how can I uh, move the most income into the lowest tax brackets. That's really what we're trying to do. And Dan, you and I are not tax professionals. We're not CPAs. We're not enrolled agents. We're not preparing taxes for anybody. So this, anytime we're talking about taxes, it always comes with our disclaimer that you should talk to your tax person, your expert, before making any choices that affect your taxes. But as financial planners, we have to be tax aware. Knowing what the burden is going to be from a required minimum distribution or an RMD is a critical piece of information when we're constructing a financial plan. So that movement from 70 and a half to 72, that was an important thing. And now there's looming legislation that that rumors to move it again out to 75, right? Right. So there's talk of the Secure Act 2.0 coming through, where really they're trying to push what they did a couple of years ago even further with the understanding that most Americans aren't on track for a secure retirement. So there are a couple of provisions in there uh, that they believe are going to push us in the right direction including more things like automatic enrollment and escalation of 401k contributions. One of those provisions that seems to be consistent in both the House and Senate version is uh, RMD starting at age 75. Okay, so that was the first thing that changed. Next, you've got who is allowed to make an IRA contribution, particularly to a traditional IRA. It used to be that once you got to that RMD age of 70 and a half, that you could no longer contribute to your IRAs, even if you were continuing to work. That has been eliminated. So you can now make a contribution even beyond age 70 and a half, as long as you continue to have earned income. So that has changed as well. I don't think that's as impactful for a huge group of people, but it's important to know that if you would like to make an IRA contribution at that point beyond the old RMD age, now you can do that. Now, there is some wonkiness that goes along with that. So if you're aware, you're eligible to make a qualified charitable distribution from your IRA, where essentially you take your RMD and just give it right to a charity. Uh, The IRS doesn't tax you when you do that. Now, if you do make IRA contributions after age 70 and a half, they are going to count all those dollars that you've contributed and remove that from the amount that is eligible for a qualified charitable distribution. So there is some wonkiness that goes along with making contributions at that age. uh, If you are otherwise planning charitable contributions from your IRA. Uh, So just something to be aware of. Correct. That definitely adds a wrinkle for people that we're going to use those QCDs, the qualified charitable distributions. Now, uh, one thing that, that I think is interesting, and I always, I'm a little bit torn anytime we share something like this because When you talk about loan provisions or the ability to get money out 
of whether it's a Roth IRA or now a qualified plan, I'm always a little bit cautious there because I don't necessarily want people to hear that you can use your Roth IRA like a bank account, right? That you can get your basis out of it. But they have allowed for a new qualifying event that if you have a child or adopt a child, that you can get $5,000 out of your IRA per parent without paying a penalty. Now, if it's traditional money, it's still going to be taxable as income. So if you take money out of a pre-tax bucket, just like if you do so in retirement and after your, your qualifying age, it's going to be taxable as income, but they are allowing you to waive the penalty on $5,000 each if you've got a, uh, a new child that you're bringing into the world or that you adopt one. Right. That's per parent per child, which can be significant. It is not cheap to have or adopt a child. And I've always said that when it comes to planning for your children, almost all common sense goes out the window. You want to do everything to make sure you can support that child. And if right off the bat, the demands for cash are high, I imagine a lot of people are going to think that's a very attractive place to pull money, regardless of the long-term impact. Right. It's like one of those things where you want people to know it. So if they get pinched and they need that cash, that they've got somewhere they can take it from. And they know that there's no penalty for doing that. But I also just want to encourage people not to treat their retirement savings in that way. I don't want to see people hurting their long-term retirement longevity or, or the ability to compound for decades because they're thinking of those retirement accounts as a place for short-term capital. So in my mind, that always needs to be kind of a tertiary level, right? That we're, That's beyond our typical cash reserve, really only in emergency scenarios if we had to get to it. But critical to know if you're in that situation, and we certainly want our listeners to be aware of it. Now, I didn't do all the reading about this, but it looks like you can pay it back. So if, if you take the money and it's only a, a bridge loan, for example, for yourself, you can get the money back in there. Knowing how most people behave, I'd imagine that's not going to happen for the majority of people as well. All right, Dan. So let's talk about what I think is the biggest impact from the SECURE Act, right? The, the RMD age moving, there's a couple new provisions on how you can add to IRAs or how you can distribute from IRAs if you needed to. But the really important thing that has changed here is for beneficiaries. What used to happen was called a stretch IRA. If you inherited an IRA from somebody, you could use your lifetime, your lifetime expectancy for how you distribute that money. And so if you inherit an IRA as a young person, and let's say you've got a 40-year longevity expectation, then what you're taking out on a yearly basis, what you're being forced to take out, is very small percentages of that IRA account, right? And so if you wanted to take out more, you can do that. But the minimum that you have to distribute was fairly small, particularly for younger people. That has been eliminated. So now there's basically three categories of people. Number one, is essentially a spouse, but a qualified beneficiary. If you give to a spouse, the rules haven't changed. So if you're inheriting money from a spouse, no problem, nothing there has changed. But for most kids and beyond, it has changed now to a 10-year distribution rule. You have 10 years to fully remove everything from the IRA. That's a big, big deal for a lot of people. It is, and it introduces a lot of challenges. So first, as a IRA owner, when you're thinking of beneficiaries, you need to think about what that burden might look like for your designated beneficiaries. I think a lot of people leaving their children as beneficiaries hoped that the money wouldn't be a tax burden on them 
because they get to take a little bit out over time. Now that time is accelerated into 10 years. Now, what you can do is you don't have to take equal distributions over 10 years. You get to pick the timing of when the money comes out so long that by the end of year 10, that account is zeroed out. So if you wanted to wait 10 years, let all the money grow and grow and compound, you could withdraw the account to zero on the very last day possible and still meet that 10-year requirement. Yeah, I mean, that that's really interesting, right? And so it starts opening up all of these different choices of, should I take the money out very quickly? Should I delay that full 10 years if I can? And the answer is, of course, it depends, right? It really depends now on your tax situation personally on how you're going to choose to treat that. A couple examples, if you yourself have just inherited an IRA, and let's say you're two to three years away from retirement, well, you're probably still in peak income years or at least close to them. So you would clearly want to wait those two or three years, not take anything out, and then distribute once you're post-retirement and you can start taking some of that money out at the lower tax bracket. That would make a lot of sense. Similarly, if you're in a low tax year this year, you might be willing to take a bigger lump out of that inherited IRA because you've got the flexibility. And if you're thinking that income is going to go up later, right? So having some directional view on where your income is going to be, and then also having some vision on on tax rates. If you think tax rates are going up or down, having some predictive ability there is really helpful. Uh, Whether you're right or wrong, you, you need to make a little bit of a call to choose when to take that money out. It's very easy to do some modeling on your own, especially if you're near some pivotal years. So for example, the pushing of the RMD age and this change in the stretch IRA rules can come together in a pretty interesting way if you're inheriting an IRA kind of towards your retirement date. So now that you don't have to take your money for an extra two years, perhaps that opens up a window where you can accelerate money out of an inherited IRA knowing that they're going to force you to empty that account within 10 years. So maybe you pull more of that out sooner in anticipation that you're going to have to start pulling your own money at 72 or perhaps even 75 if this new legislation passes. Now, I'll tell you where I think it's really interesting is on inheriting a Roth IRA. You know, a Roth IRA, and again, we're, we're being a little bit loose with the language here because I, I don't want to have to go into every single nuance of this stuff. But if you inherit a Roth IRA, Uh, In the old world with the stretch, you still got all of this time to kind of stretch those payments over, uh, but it was tax-free money. But you had to take it every year, right? Because of that required minimum distribution, it was likely that you had to take that Roth distribution every year. In this new world, if you inherit a Roth IRA, it's got the same 10-year rule, and there's no requirement to take the money out in year one. So you effectively have 10 years of tax-free compounding and growth for free when you inherit a Roth IRA. So I I think for a lot of people, the Roth conversion case has actually gotten stronger, particularly if they've got kids or the money is going to go to somebody that is in higher income earning years, because they're they're not only going to get that money without a a burden on it, but they're going to get an extra 10 years of compounding after death, which is could be really powerful, right? Under a 7% return assumption, we assume that portfolio is going to double over a 10-year window. That's really huge. Right. So not the same lifetime that you had before, but still a very powerful tool. So I'm not sure Roth IRAs have become any less attractive than they were before, and it's worth seeing if it's a fit for you. Now, there is, as in all things tax, a loophole. There is a way 
that you can continue to do a stretch IRA, but it has gotten more complicated and it's gotten more expensive. That method is called a charitable remainder trust. Through a charitable remainder trust, and this is kind of getting into estate planning issues, and, and we absolutely want to have an estate planner on our show. Uh, we've got a couple of folks picked out that I think we're, we're going to have on in future dates. So we're going to get further and further into some of the estate planning issues. But a charitable remainder trust is essentially a gift that you make to a charity now. You choose to give the asset. That charitable remainder trust will kick out income to your chosen beneficiary for their lifetime, and at the end, the remainder goes to the charity. Through that method, you could essentially give the IRA to a charitable remainder trust, create that lifetime income stream, and then the remainder would still need to go to a charity, and that's an irrevocable decision when you do it. Now, to do that, you're, you're making several things a little bit more complicated and a little bit more expensive. Number one, you've got to create the trust. So there's some legal work that needs to be done. When you have a trust like that, each year the trust has to file a tax return. So you are now going to have a tax return each year for that beneficiary for having that trust. So the cost and benefit versus doing it this way versus just using the 10-year distribution option, I think it's only going to be used for probably very large IRA accounts where it's meaningful to, to stretch the income over more years, uh, and maybe just for people that have super high income at the beneficiary level, right? So if you're leaving the money to somebody that is very high income earning and stretching that out way further is going to help them a lot, maybe that case makes sense. But I think it's going to be pretty rare that that comes up. Right. The other obvious expense is that you're also making an irrevocable gift to a charity, so ideally, you're inclined to do that kind of thing anyway. And if you are charitably inclined, it's worth revisiting your entire estate plan to make sure that you're optimizing what money goes where. So for example, if you're going to leave money to an organization, a charitable institution, you might eye your pre-tax money to go to those institutions and leave more tax-efficient assets to your kids or, or named beneficiaries. The third category of people that can be left money, right? So we've kind of talked about two. There is a uh, spousal designated beneficiary or a qualified designated beneficiary. Then there's a named designated beneficiary. The third version is really when a, be a beneficiary isn't named. So if you leave an IRA just to your estate, or if you leave an IRA to a regular trust that is not set up to be a see-through trust, Right? There are certain trust types that are designed to be used by IRAs. But if you have just a normal revocable living trust or a family trust, those are not designed for IRAs. And if you leave money to things that aren't designed for it, the final rule is five years. You actually lose out on the 10 years. So if, if right now you go and you look at your IRA designations, and, and again, consult, consult with either your tax advisor or an estate attorney before making any of these adjustments. But if you're leaving money to a trust and, some, and your attorney hasn't specifically told you to do that, I would revisit it because I, I think it's, that, that is a potential red flag for me when I see it, just to go back and confirm with the attorney, is this what we want? Has this trust been designed to accept the IRA assets? Because if not, you could be opening yourself and your estate up to a potential pitfall that, that I, I think most people either aren't aware of or maybe weren't preparing for. 
Right. And if it was designed to meet those stretch IRA guidelines, it might not be appropriate anymore, depending on how it was written. So a good rule is if you are leaving your IRA to a trust, you should talk to your attorney to see if that's still appropriate, period. It's good to check up on regardless, but that's a big a big nudge in the direction to schedule a, a review. So there's some other little rules that that come on with the SECURE Act, but I think those are the main moving parts. If, if people understand those things, that number one, the RMD age has changed. Number two, your ability to contribute to your traditional IRAs no longer stops at age 70 and a half. So if that applies, you still have a choice, maybe a reason to, to continue making contributions. Number three, you've got some early access points. If you have a child or an adoption event, you could have penalty-free access to some of that IRA money. And then very critically, that the amount of time your beneficiaries have to withdraw money, or if you've got parents and you're expecting to inherit money, the amount of time that you will have to distribute that money, right? I mean, we're kind of talking about it from the giver's perspective here, but this is going to affect a lot of beneficiaries that are receiving these assets. So uh, big things to keep in mind. Um, When we think about tax planning, I always like to think about it at the family level. Now, not every family operates this way, right? Families are super sensitive in terms of how the finances work. But for me, again, this is my default positioning. If we can transfer more wealth at the family level, that's a good thing. For some people, they say, hey, listen, I'm, I'm giving my kids money. If they pay a little bit in extra taxes for this money that they didn't earn, who cares? I don't think that's an irresponsible way to look at it, but I do think there's some great opportunities if we're thoughtful about how we do this and we plan ahead. And it seems like the U.S. government is putting more and more of a focus on nudging Americans to prepare well for retirement. So we're expecting more legislation to come through in the near term. If that SECURE Act 2.0 passes, we'll definitely highlight some of the changes that come about. So keep an ear out, listen to check your balances on the regular. And if you enjoy the show or have any questions about how the SECURE Act may impact you or any other areas of personal finance that interest you, check your balances at Outlook.com. By the way, if we feature your question on the show, we just got some great looking check your balances coffee mugs. We mentioned on last week's show that we got some swag. We've got these gorgeous deep blue coffee mugs with our logo on them. We love them. We're getting ready to start sending those out. So some of the folks that have already submitted questions, uh, we're going to be sending those out to you. But if you send us a question that we feature until we run out of mugs, we're happy to send you one. We appreciate all the listener feedback and uh, the contributions to the show. So thank you, everybody. We'll catch you next week.